This is Maria Bustillos, the editor of Popula and the founding editor of the Brick House Cooperative of journalists, artists, cartoonists, and others interested in ad-free cooperative media. I'm here with my colleague, Harry Siegel, the founder of FAQ NYC, also a member of the Brick House Cooperative. And Harry and I are founding a podcast today as well our first podcast from the Brick House. And we are joined today by Gabriel Snyder to discuss his new venture, Off the Record. And uh, we're going to be talking about media and modern media and the future of media. And uh, welcome, everybody. Hello, Harry. Hello. Hey, Gabriel. Before we get to the uh, big stuff, um, fill us in on what exactly you're doing and where people can find it. Sure, thank you for having me here. Um, so I uh, launched, a, a, it's an email newsletter right now called Off the Record, um, and you can go subscribe at offtherecord.nyc. Um, and what it is, is, is a kind of media reporting um, really concentrated on New York City media. Um, and it kind of is a throwback of sorts. Uh, you know, I, I, I remember one of my first jobs um, was a media reporter and, when I started, there were a good eight or 12 other reporters on the beat. I remember going to the newsstand every day, um, that kind of dates me, uh, and being afraid of what they were going to have and, and, and getting scooped. And, you know, there really isn't that kind of beat reporting um, on the media and, and also lots of other beats. Um, and so I wanted to bring it back. Um, and so we're covering, you know, um, Various uh, the hires and fires, the dramas that go inside newsrooms. Um, you know, uh, our big story uh, yesterday was doing an odds chart on who's going to be the next executive editor of the New York Times. Um, really, just sort of the stuff that you know people who work in the business talk about um, over lunch and drinks. I would like to start by asking you, Gabriel, to go over your background a little bit because a lot of people maybe are not uh, aware of the. Uh, peripatetic and illustrious history of Gabriel Snyder, which I <laughs> love hearing about. So tell us a little bit about that. Um, well, I have worked in a lot of places, which uh, I, I view to chalk up to my uh, adventurous spirit and not my uh, difficulty of holding down a job. Uh, I started out in New York as a writer and reporter, uh, the first the New York Observer and then uh, Us Weekly. Um, and then I went out to LA and I uh, covered the movie business um, for Variety, um, did a little bit of celebrity profiling uh, for W Magazine. Um, and then I came back to New York to edit Gawker. Um, and that kind of sent me on my editing career. Um, I think, where have I been since then? I did a stint at Newsweek. And, uh, and then the Atlantic uh, ran a site called the Atlantic Wire for them for a while. Um, and then uh, my most recent staff job was editing the, uh, the New Republic. I asked once uh, AJ Delary, whom I admire a lot as a writer and editor, whom he thought was the Gawker editor who had really put Gawker on the map. And he said, you without the slightest hesitation. And I, I think a lot of people would agree with that. Like what, what was different about your editing of Gawker and also comment a little bit about what you think about today's Gawker. I'd be interested in hearing that. 
Well, that was very generous of, of AJ to say. Um, I, you know, I, I, I have a, a strong belief that, um, you know, Gawker is not one thing. Uh, part of the, you know, genius and maybe even the uh, the weakness of it was that it kind of changed over. Um, every every new editor brought in a new vision, um, and uh, the particular chapter of the history that I think I was part of um, was basically. Um, helping it go from being a very Manhattan-centric gossip sheet uh, to being more of a national um, outlet. Um, and so um, part of, actually, this is kind of relevant to, to off the record. I remember I was one of the editors that got rid of the media reporting. Um, you know, it used to be a standard kind of blog post there of, you know, so-and-so was spotted having lunch with so-and-so at the Condé Nast cafeteria. Um, but I had Nick Denton breathing down my neck for, uh, for traffic. And, and I knew that it was probably a better use of a blogger's time to do a story about something stupid a celebrity posted on Facebook. Um, and so, you know, it wasn't just that kind of thing. I, I think also we're looking for ways to Kind of move the needle um, in the in the national news cycle. I, I I remember one of the stories that you know I was most proud of of, of editing um, was written by John Cook, who went on to be an editor himself um, and sort of a big champion of the Gawker ethos. Um, in which he uh, you know he 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 came to me. Uh, he sat next to me at the time, and he asked he he wanted to do a story of that some good government group had done about. Um, bad behavior amongst the security contractor at the Kabul State Department outpost. Um, mm. And I was like, eh, you know, that sounds kind of a wonky story. Um, why don't you ask them if they got any photos? And so he calls, he, he calls them and he goes back and he's like, yeah, they got a CD full of them. So oh we God. get the photos and it was this great story about the security contracting firm was kind of running their, their, their Kabul operation as like a little frat house. Um, and they had all these pictures of, you know, just guys doing stupid stuff, drinking and 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 posing mm -hmm. and 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 weird wearing, you know, coconut bras for whatever reason. Um, and, Good morning, and so we <laughs> exactly. So so we put up the <laughs> the story with a with with the photos, and uh, and John did his thorough reporting. Um, and I think the headline was something like, you know, our our embassy in Kabul is being guarded by. Uh, sexually confused frat boys. And mm -hmm. within about, I don't know, 30 minutes, an hour of that going up, it was all over cable news. They all ran mm -hmm. with it. And, and then we got all these calls from, you know, people at Mother Jones and the nation and, and what I'm saying, hey, I've been writing about this for, for, you know, two weeks and, you know, you stole my story. And I felt bad for them, but I also felt like that was what Gawker could do, is that, you know, by mm -hmm. being a playful packager of, of these stories, uh, you could get a wider audience. And it ended up that, that you know, that scandal, I, I, I'll let others judge how much credit Gawker deserves, but it led to Senate hearings and it led to, you know, a hundred million dollar contract getting canceled. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I, and I always kind of had, had, that always was sort of the essence of what I kind of saw the potential of a Gawker, a Gawker site to, to be. 
I agree with you so much. And the thing is that, that sort of, um, some people just uh, discounted it as kind of an anarchic sensibility or, you know, not playful or revealing of stuff in any particular way, just like, you know, shit stirring, like, but it wasn't that to me at all. It was like, these are the people who were actually saying, you know, this is stupid or this is vulgar or this is um, wrong, you know, openly where like very buttoned up and polite conventional media would always stop short of like making the obvious judgment that everybody is in the public, you know, their readership is waiting for somebody to say, this sucks. This is awful. This is embarrassing, you know, or whatever. And so I, I really regret the loss of it every day, you know, like both Gawker and, and the all, you know, that have since departed. RIP, you know, the all was also a great site. I mean, you know, that, that there is this moment of, you know, early blog blogging where, you know, everything's felt so hopeful. And I think that mm. uh, one of the hopeful things was that if you, you know, if you build it, they will come. Uh, meaning, you know, you could create a great space for, talented writers and creative people to do cool things and that they couldn't do pitching the, you know, the various gatekeepers of media. Um, and, you know, I feel like that era has sadly passed. Um, you know, the, um, we, we, everything has kind of uh, evolved to its industrial scale form. And, um, and I think, right now as far as online publishing goes it's a sad conformity um everything is optimized for you know sharing and and clicks and and google and facebook and and whatnot everyone's learned those lessons and and so you know if you look at you know I, i i try not to read twitter anymore um in part because i don't get anything from it like i used to when it felt like i was being instantly connected to some of the most interesting people on the planet. Um, and I want to push back a little bit on that though, because I mean, yeah. as long as people want to know the truth about what's going on, there's going to be a hunger for this. And I mean, it's very much what we're trying to do at the brick house, you know, with our tiny non-existent budget, you know, just to say the things that need to be said. And, you know, eventually you find the vein, I, I believe this because people want to be informed about what's going on in the world. And, you know, from trustworthy people who don't have, who's, who have a, an imperative uh, for what they're talking about or writing about aside from mm, commercial imperatives. Oh, I, I'm on hundred percent with you on the, the, the desire to, to, to be connected with other people and with valuable, you know, information. Um, I think the, I I guess what I'm sort of concluded is that it's impossible to do that right now with the open web and the, and the, and social media. Um, I mean, this, this has sort of been a theory I've been working on for, you know, it was, it was actually in the 2016 election when, when uh, the, the, the campaign that I really started having this, this feeling that there was just this, uh, monocrop of information on Twitter. Uh, Twitter was, I was, I've, I've been a Twitter addict for, you know, a decade or more now. And uh, 
there was a there was I think it's been killed, but there was there was an app called Nuzzle, which was really handy. Um, it, it would show you the links that are most commonly spoken about, you know, that most of your yeah. people and your following are, are, are talking about. And it was a good way to kind of get the news. And every day I'd pick up the links and it, it would be 10 stories, but it would just be 10 versions of the same story. And it you know, and what it started to make me realize is that at least the community of people I follow only seem to have the capacity to think about one thing at a time. Uh, maybe two. Um, mm. and, it, and it was really different from, you know, my first days of being online was um, my first time on being online was, you know, using Gopher and Fetch and all of these, mm. you know, antiquated things. And I just remember that amazing moment when I realized I could get newspaper headlines from all over the world. And I could, you know, pull in, you know, all of these pieces. And I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, which had one pretty bad morning paper. It had an afternoon paper that died. Uh, and that was pretty much it. I mean, if you wanted news beyond that, you're watching TV or reading Time and Newsweek. Um, and the internet, in you know, to a kid like me in the 1990s, was just opened up this vista on the world that was unbelievable and, and 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 that I wanted to be part of and and I think that 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 the sort of the optimizing for virality has really kind of led the internet the experience of the internet not not obviously there's plenty of stuff on there but the experience of being a news consumer of the internet it's a very closing space I I, I felt like it the world got smaller the more and more I was um, I was reading, you know, the latest, checking in on my Twitter timeline. How much of this do you think is you getting older and the, the people you're around on Twitter? Because I, I ask myself this, you know, as, as the world got less interesting, or is it the places that, that, that I'm connected to and professionally obliged to be around? So I'm pretty sure the, the world's always interesting and full of interesting corners. And if the conversation I'm having isn't about them, maybe that says more about me than about the world. Well, and, and, and this really is sort of what I've, the, the, at least the hypothesis behind off the record is that there are plenty of really interesting communities online right now, or just communities, period. Um, but they're harder to find. Um, and maybe they are harder for someone of my advancing years. Um, it's part of the process. I don't go out as much. I've got kids and, you know, and I understand that, that my world has shrunk. But, but I think that in a way it's become harder to feel connected to these smaller like-minded groups. Um, I mean, if you wanted to go deep into you know, pick a hobby. I don't know. You're, you're, you're a tomato, you're growing tomatoes. Um, you know, you can find some Facebook group or, you know, a TikToker who will go deep into the tomato gardening world, um, or pick your, you know, sexual kink or substance of choice. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's all, there, there's going to be obsessives on there. Um, but I think you have to really kind of go out of your way to find that, um, in a way that uh, it felt like the, you know, when I was reading, um, you know, 20 blogs every day, I felt like more of those interesting things were, were finding me. Um, and I think that's, that's at least the, 
the thing I feel has changed. I think it's very much to do with the corporatization and the intermediaries who have come in to break those bonds. Like there was a moment even, you know, in the like late aughts when you could go to Facebook and you could type in like your interests and, you know, you could type in a very obscure, I would like think about the most obscure writers that I could have like Ernest Brahma and you would find the 12 people on earth who were on Facebook that had only recently, you know, been opened up to whoever and you could contact those people and Facebook would have nothing to do with it. But like by the, you know, within 10 years that had become impossible to do. And I think that this is what's responsible, Gabriel, for what you're talking about. Like the sort of, um, if you want to find people who are into Ernest Brahma now, or if you want to, you know, contact people directly, there's, uh, you can only do it through a Facebook group you know, mm -hmm. or through like, it's gotten a lot harder. There was like a moment where the internet was free and sort of, um, I don't want to say optimized, built, you know, it's original purpose was purpose built for individuals to find each other and connect. Intermediaries mm -hmm. were looking to monetize those relationships, close that door. And it's our yeah. job to open it again. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, I, that corporatization, you know, the, the, the word that weighs heavily in my mind as to why publishing on the web became less fun is, is scale. Um, and that is the watchword that these tech giants, you know, that is their, that's what they, they're, they're chasing. You know, um, Facebook wants to connect all the billions on the planet. Um, and that's a, that's not a that's not a you know a scale that I'm used to existing on. I I I've existed I exist in a much smaller community. I like I like I like New York. Um, it's a big big place, but not billions. Um, and and I think that you know the experience of being a web editor, um, you know, when I started doing that in you know about 2008 2009, um, there was just this always this sense that you needed to get bigger faster that the winner was going to be the one that was you know that was going to do it first and at a certain point it just felt like i was you know running across a collapsing bridge and just trying to get to the other side before it all fell apart um, and at this point, I've just concluded, you know, we know who won the scale game. It's Facebook, it's Google, it's, you know, the big giants. And, and this, the editors uh, on the web are kind of left with this task of make the hamster wheels run faster. It's a losing, it's a losing game, I, I, I think. And, and so I've really been trying to come up with an alternative. Like if, 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 if scale isn't going to work for the craft that I care about, um, what is the alternative? And, and my new North star is relevance. Um, you know, I think relevance is a way, is a, is a way that you can, it's a very old fashioned way of, of, of editing, but, you know, if you were a, uh, the editing a small paper, you know, at the dawn of newspapers, you would be thinking about what was most relevant to your village or town. Um, and so that's what I'm doing with Off the Record is I, I've, I've picked a village. Um, it's the New York media people. And, and I want to try to make a local publication that is relevant for them. Um, and 
And I don't know if it's going to work, but the reason why I think it might is what I realized was that, you know, virality was sort of this thing that has been beaten into everyone's head that you need a hit, you need something to pop, you need that big traffic winner. Um, But all virality is, is relevance at industrial scale. It's a way to manufacture, to mass produce a, a product that someone's going to feel like I need to read this right now because of the catchy headline, the scintillating photo, the funny joke, whatever. Well, we've got lots of tactics to, to stimulate that kind of response. But ultimately, what, what it's doing is making someone think, this matters to me. And I think there's a different way to, 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 to accomplish that um, by just knowing who the people you're, you're, you're publishing for and, 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 and giving them what is genuine, genuinely relevant to their day-to-day. Um, and so that's sort of the, 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 the premise of Off the Record is that if I can create a publication that is highly relevant to the New York media people that um, that we're covering, then they will in turn pay us for subscriptions that then in turn pays for the editorial operation that produces the product. And hopefully that virtuous circle will turn into a thriving, thriving business. So speaking of virtuous circles and uh, nastier ones, you had an item couple days ago about the uh, shadow editors of Substack and Substack of course is promoting its most successful writers with big followings and scale while paying not terribly well and with a cap on like how many hours per month they can work uh, editors who are who are then working with those writers which to me again sort of suggests the ways in which all this unbundling and attempts to rethink the business is Facebook and Google and others have sucked up all the uh, the good juicy profit. Um, leaves fewer and fewer winners. Uh, you were describing it as uh, running across a collapsing bridge. I've thought of my own career as like jumping from melting iceberg to melting iceberg. Uh, but <laughs> I, I'm curious if if you have some sense of hope or optimism for where things could be going in operations like uh, Defector, for instance. Uh, or the Brick House, which are actually quite different in that the defector is focused on sports. You know, um, everyone there has a sort of a common set of interests. The Brick House is an attempt to get people who are curious about the world and are actually very much looking aside from, from relevance. Like it's not the water cooler conversation or aiming to be. It's things that individual people find interesting. Like, is there a, a space for a smaller journalist? journalistic operations to, to to sort of find new niches to do good work in this environment? Is there hope that larger operations are going to start figuring out ways to succeed editorially and financially, or, or are things as grim as, uh, you know, they frankly appear? I am an optimist because I think that the wasteland of the media landscape is full of opportunities. There are vacuums uh, that people can fill. Uh, that's that's you know kind of what I, I see myself doing right now. Um, of course, that's premised on a belief that it we're we're living through absolutely bleak times. Um, 
So, yeah, I think, you know, the operations like yours at Brickhouse and Defector and all these new experiments um, are are really exciting. And, and, and I think some of them are going to work. I, 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 I hope both of those do. Um, you know, Substack, that, that, that Substack piece, um, you know, was it did a lot of people, it's, it's one of our, one of our big hits so far. Um, and, and I think it just basically told people, you know, they, 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 they weren't too happy with it. Um, they, they, I think Substack feels that they are falsely maligned, um, in, in New York media. Um, but I think there's, there's a real ideological, that's the best word I have for it, divide between their vision of media and a more, you know, New York sensibility uh, vision of media. And it comes down to the value of institutions rather versus the value of independent creators. Um, you know, Substack is part of this, you know, burgeoning uh, economy of creators of, you know, and there's lots of people who can make a lot of money by being brands and posting vlogs and, and, and setting up Patreons and setting up their Substacks and issuing NFTs and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I, I you know, power to them. Um, mm. but I, I am <laughs> of a belief that journalism does not fit into that ideology. Um, I think journalists, journalists need institutional support. Uh, in, it, the idea of an independent journalist is a vulnerable journalist. It's someone who won't have the ability to challenge power because power will crush the individual. Um, and that's really the thing that I'm most afraid of with, with Substack is, you know, Glenn Greenwald, to name one, one, one individual, um, you know, he would have had a very tough time, I think, publishing the Edward Snowden story as an individual substacker versus having the full support of a, of a grand publication like The Guardian or, you know, what went on to be built around him, The Intercept. Um, and, and so, you know, the, 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 the piece we did about Substack's editors is and, 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 and how they are going about paying them and as contractors you know, it's really sort of because and you mentioned approach- that the, the contractually they're, they're wide open to lawsuits, uh, uh, the way that, yeah. that default is set up. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, sh- we should also talk about that. If we're talking about Substack, we should also talk about the vulnerability of these individual writers. If you read the contract, you know, they can change the deal on them any second. You know, they can yeah. suddenly start charging them this huge amount of money for the same service, they can publish any way they want. I mean, there there are enormous, enormous vulnerabilities. I always feel like I want to laugh when people say like, I'm an independent, I'm working from, no, you're not. You're working for freaking Mark Andreessen. I mean, get real. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't think that Substack set out to do it this way or they, they, they mean to do this, but it just feels like they are, trying to accomplish the uberization of, of media. They're, they're, you know, and, and Uber didn't set out to, you know, bankrupt, you know, taxi medallion holders. Um, I, I believe them when I'm, they say they try to get so people sure from one that. place to another. <laughs> you, <laughs> really they don't say that though. Hold, hold on. 
They say they're not a transportation company. They're a tech company that's just facilitating these connections. And yet these motherfuckers, a cab company without cabs, manage to lose money every year on many rides that they have no place in. And the reason why they have to lose money is because they're selling everything below cost, have to pay the drivers more without paying them well to build scale. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. So the thing that the brick house and defector and these sorts of places have is that, that they're not scale operations. They're like, if a couple thousand people like this and are willing to put $5 a month or whatever, where, where their, their mouth is or where their eyeballs are, that works. Which, incidentally, is how the newspaper business used to work. It was like basically the grocery business on a somewhat larger scale. But, you know, if you had a great year, you're going to make 3%. In a shitty year, you're going to break even. However, if you have to demonstrate constant growth and you're paying to juice that growth, that's when all of this gets screwed up. And you do end up with this Uberization of, of everything, sure. I think. You guys, you guys have both seen the cartoon of Pinocchio, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're at the point of this thing where, you know, the cigars are being handed around, you know, and pretty soon the ears are going to start to come out, my friend. It's like, this is just like herding everybody into this little place where they're going to treat you right and pay you a lot of money. And there are no guarantees afterwards for what's going to happen to you. We've seen these people are really ruthless profiteers. So I think, you know, the end game is already written. When were the, uh, when, 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 when were people... In journalism, the boss is not really ruthless profiteers. The well, there was like at least you could. There was at least another paper you could go to. There was at least another job you could get. Yeah. And do we see that now? Like, there's fewer and fewer and fewer outlets. Or and it, if if it were deliberate, it could not have been done more efficiently. So yeah. I have a lot of suspicions about people who are investing money in these kinds of projects. You know, like. Because of that, you couldn't design a more efficient system to choke press freedom. Gabe, give, given that, 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 that New York journalism is relatively small at this point, and that's useful in some ways, it's a little village, um, but it, you know, it's getting eaten up by, by, by this big industrial tech thing in certain ways, like the money is. Like, who, who cares about this world? Who should care about this world? And what is it exactly that, that, that they should be focused on and paying attention to? I think the people who care about journalism in New York, who have dedicated their careers to a craft that they believe in, are the first people who should care about it. And the the weakness that is in you know that we can attest to, you know, timing doesn't exist anymore. Which uh, Condé Nast is a much reduced, diminished force than it used to be. Um, you know. Newsweek doesn't really exist anymore. It's still it's a website. Um, but these places, these, these traditional institutions have all been, you know, some of them don't exist, some of them weakened. But that doesn't mean that the community of people who make journalism in New York doesn't exist. Um, they work at different places right now. And, and I kind of feel like that's one of the, the, the core you know, projects of a publication like Off the Record is just to explain the industry to itself. You know, our, our launch story was uh, about genius, rap genius. Uh, that's when they started out shutting down or getting sold, not shutting down. And, um, and you know, and I, for a while I thought, you know, is a website that has, you know, tells you what rap lyrics mean? Is that, is that a New York media institution? It's not. 
but they've been hiring a lot of people who are, and there's a lot of people in the industry who have been asking them a question of, should I go work for a, a, a company like this? Um, you know, and, 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 and these kind of conversations that happen over drinks with friends is like, you know, will you get to do the kind of work that you want to do? You know, if you're, if you're a music journalist, you get to, you know, it doesn't really matter if it's Rolling Stone paying the bills. Um, if you're still doing the kind of important, you know, music journalism that you want to do, then yeah, uh, you could do it. And I feel like there are just a million places like this. I mean, you go on LinkedIn and you can find these editor in chiefs for my favorite one was this company called Newsstand. They're looking for an editorial director of in office office lobby kiosks. And I don't know what an editorial director does for those, but it's, you know, it's kind of the, the, the questions that I think people, it's a confusing time. And so I think it's a, it's, it's, it, it now more than ever, you know, you, the community needs someone to just explain the landscape um, because it's 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 so different. And I just come at it from, you know, when when I was out in Hollywood, um, you know, I, I, I it was very different than the New York media world that I that I had come up in. And the 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 rules I came back with were, you know, the money always changes. Companies go in and out of business. People go in and out of power but the names always stay the same. And I think that that's what New York media is, is right now that, you know, yes, you know, the places that people are, wherever you're working right now, whatever your job is, if you're in New York media, the odds of you having that job in two years are pretty, pretty, pretty short. Uh, and so the, uh, we're, we're going from a place, a, a kind of a industrial format where you worked at one place for 30 years and retired with a pension and a gold watch to one where people are lily padding around, around the business. And I think what unites them is that people care about the work. The only reason that people stay in journalism is because they, 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 they think it's a craft that, that is important to them. It's part of their identity. And so um, so that's why I feel like, you know, despite this, despite us being in a bleak time for New York media, um, it's a good time for, for a publication like Off the Record. I just want to recommend Off the Record to everybody. I am in Scotland right now and uh, sometimes in California, but that does not matter because so much of the media that the world looks at and reads and listens to is, you know, hatched in New York, like, these ideas and and so many of the best people, editors, the most curious, intelligent people who are working on, um, you know, innovations that are going to help uh, curious people learn about what's going on are in New York. So I kind of feel like anybody who's interested in honest media should have a look at Off the Record. I love it and I want it to succeed. And I want to thank you both. Are we supposed to be wrapping up, Harry? Because... Um, we got to do a lightning round. We got to do a yeah. lightning round here. <laughs> Let's so, do a lightning round. Best novel about New York media. Uh, Miss Lonely Hearts. Mm. Mm. I'm going to go with Locusts Have No King, but that's that's can't go wrong here. That's so I will mm. say Man in the Gray Flannel Suit. His Girl Friday. I'm a sucker for it. I love that movie. I've watched it eight billion times. I I hate the hat. 
<laughs> well, the uh, maybe you would like the front page. That was the the uh, that the original, the original version yeah. of it, which is a is is not a comedy at all. Mm-hmm. Part of why His Girl Friday is such a wonderful comedy is that it's grafted onto this fairly dark story, not quite Ace in the Hole dark, but dark as fuck. You know about this this uh, murderer who's going to die who didn't actually do the murder. And these people chasing him, not exactly for the truth, but for the story, which happens to overlap with the truth. So when you overlay that with 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 screwball romance, like the, the combination of light and dark is uh, is just is just wonderful. And that, the dialogue, of course, is unbeatable. Yeah. Well, the genius of the of, of, of cast of the casting Hildy as a as a female reporter in His Girl Friday is the insight that. At the heart uh, of, the, of a reporter editor relationship, it is a romance. It, it's a it's a it's, it's an ex marriage probably, but it is a romance. Mm. <laughs> What's divorce these days? Just a few words. A judge scribbles on a sheet of paper. <laughs> hey, this this has been great. Thank you very much for joining us. Will you just give listeners the uh, URL one more time? So if they want to sign up, they can. Absolutely. It is off the record.nyc. Yay. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. I had the best time, and I can't wait to read your next newsletter and find out where you go next. <laughs> I can't wait until the next newsletter is ready today. I'm on deadline. <laughs> <laughs> I know I got to go write a book review. <laughs> <laughs>